listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Just a reminder that KHOL has an exciting event coming up on August 24th. We're throwing a free concert on the lawn at the Center for the Arts in downtown Jackson with local bands and local brews. Mark your calendars for a night with Abby Webster, Inland Isle, High Point Cider, and Roadhouse Brewery. That's August 24th, starting at 6 p.m. Please also, if you can, take a minute to leave a rating for Jackson Unpacked on Apple Podcasts. That really helps more people find out about the show and supports the KHOL team in doing this work. Thanks. Coming up on today's show, a conversation with the founder of the upcoming Idaho Adventure Film Festival. We really wanted to kind of bridge the gap between like Stoke adventure films, but also films that really make you think. Plus, a climate reporter reflects on how 30 years have changed the experience of rafting through the Grand Canyon. Riding a rubber raft down the boisterous Colorado River rapids made the floating press conference fun. But first, the first day of school is less than three weeks away in Teton County. But like many other school boards across the country, the Teton County Board of Trustees is putting off making a consequential decision whether or not to require masks in school facilities as the Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads across Wyoming. KHOL's Will Walkie has more. Okay, we'll get started. All to order. The Teton County School District's administration building was more packed than usual with parents, teachers, and students Wednesday evening. And though there were lots of items on the board's agenda, facilities updates, funding challenges, kindergarten registration, and more, most of the crowd was only interested in one thing. I'm here tonight to not only speak on behalf of my children, but also on behalf of several staff members um, who feel their input doesn't matter. The masking is cheap, it's easy, and I truly believe it's the um, a common sense way to handle a, an illness that is um, really easy to catch. So I really uh, would like to ask you to let parents choose because whether they want their child to sit in a mask for eight hours. Have any of you actually sat in a mask for eight hours? It's disgusting. The spread of COVID-19 is accelerating again in Teton County, though not yet at the same rates as in other parts of the U.S. Superintendent Gillian Chapman presented the district's Smart Start Plan Wednesday, which outlines how county schools plan to mitigate coronavirus spread through vaccine recommendations, hygiene measures, and social distancing when possible. Um, Our focus continues to be on the safety of staff and students while we address the individual needs of students. But Chapman and the school board are currently doing something they tell their students not to do, procrastinating, this time on face coverings. And they won't get help from the state on that decision either, as Governor Mark Gordon has already said he's leaving it up to the local boards to decide. Being an optimist, um, I sincerely hope that data in our community change um, over the next uh, couple of weeks. Whatever decision the board eventually makes is likely to anger plenty of people. Anti-mask folks showed up in full force at the recent meeting, outnumbering pro-mask public comments 9 to 2. I know the law is on my side, and I want my child to know that I'm standing up for what I believe in. Leave the choice to the parents where it belongs. Every day, my kids cried almost every day to go to school because they had to wear those masks. Yes, I am calling it medical tyranny because that's what it is. And the masks are a big part of it. 
This is not fair to any of our children, and masking is completely unacceptable. Meanwhile, written public comments were a lot more balanced. In fact, those in favor of masking have a slight edge as a press time. Naaman Horn is one of the two people who spoke up in favor of requiring face coverings in schools on Wednesday. I don't want my kids to live a story where we tell them that their lives, their freedoms are more important than saving the lives of their teachers, their custodial workers, their grandparents, because they didn't want to wear a mask. People are dying. 74% of Teton County residents are fully vaccinated, according to the New York Times. That's well above the state average. But there have still been reports of a few breakthrough infections, and local health officials have raised the community risk level from normal to low to moderate over the past few weeks. That's part of why school board chair Keith Gingery potentially wants to wait until August 25th to make a final decision on masks. Some parents, like Jamie Young, say that's too late. Why is this mask issue not being decided now. It needs to be because we as parents are deciding whether we're going to homeschool or not. And that's a big choice for us and a big job as a mother. COVID-19 vaccines are not yet authorized for children under 12, and many parents have also been hesitant to give older kids the shot. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention does recommend universal indoor masking at all K-12 schools across the country this year. Time will tell if Teton County follows suit. Milwaukee, K-12 News. Colorado River is grappling with shortages this year, but it was a very different story nearly 30 years ago. High flows coming through a dam just upstream of the Grand Canyon were ripping it apart. Inside Climate News reporter Judy Faze rode down the canyon then as part of a floating press tour. Faze recently revisited the canyon and found that the park is still facing water challenges. They're just different ones now. Riding a rubber raft down the boisterous Colorado River rapids made the floating press conference fun. But fast-moving water from the Glen Canyon Dam was actually the problem back then. Water shooting through the turbines was wrecking the river environment. What we're trying to do is to figure out how do the operations of the dam impact this? Are there thresholds in dam operation where we tend to accelerate erosion of these beaches? And are there thresholds where we might tend to start to rebuild? some of these beaches. Dave Wegner led scientific studies of the dam's impacts for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation back in 1990. Longtime NPR reporter Howard Burkus was on that trip too, and he gathered this audio. What's happening now is we're seeing the water come up. A stick planted in the sand on the river's edge during lunchtime showed how radically the river rose and fell, two feet in an hour, up to 13 in a day. Underwater. The stick is underwater. Wigner was illustrating what happened every time dam operators released extra water through the hydroelectric turbines. We're releasing more water at Glen Canyon Dam in response to electrical demand in the power grid. The water blasts were chewing up the sandy beaches that rafters used. They upended wildlife habitat and aquatic life. And the frigid fluctuations put endangered species at risk, like the humpback chub, which is a fish that likes warm water. New laws and policies followed the floating press conference in 1990. 
Scientific research prompted federal agencies to operate the dam with the environment in mind. Humpback Chub are on the rebound. Camping beaches are rebuilding. We can see what effect those changes over a couple of decades have been having and how the ecosystem is responding. Scott Vanderkoy of the U.S. Geological Survey oversees Grand Canyon Science Now. He says studying the Colorado River's most iconic reach is still important after two decades of drought and climate change. There's a sense of urgency there in trying to understand what is happening and how quickly and how much things will change. The reason for continuing the research became clear this spring. I returned to the Grand Canyon to see how it's facing the problem of too little water. Springs weren't gushing the way they used to. Cactuses were shriveling. You're pointing at the cactus. Yeah, you know you're dealing with a drought when you're seeing desert plants falling over for lack of water. USGS researcher Helen Fairley was documenting changes in beaches and vegetation this spring when I ran into her in the canyon. She's been doing fieldwork in the Grand Canyon for decades. And like me, she found it odd how bighorn sheep were flocking to the riverbanks in spring. Generally, they don't come down until uh, late summer, fall, when the water sources up high dry out. I told her how a bighorn had glared down at our camp from a rocky ridge one night, as if we'd elbowed its hungry family away from the dinner buffet. Well, this year, apparently, they don't have water up high, and that's why we're getting so many sheep down along the river at this time of year, which is really unusual. Water became a preoccupation for us, too. It was hotter and drier than usual, and our five-gallon water jugs ran out surprisingly fast. We spent lots of time planning how to refill them. A few times, we pumped river water so we'd have something to drink. About 40 million people rely on Colorado River water. Flows have been declining over two decades, and climate change is speeding up evaporation. Well, I guess we can top them all the off. river is more than just a water supply for the region's cities and farms. Researcher Helen Fairley says we should remember it supports ecosystems too. Future policy ought to reflect that. Hopefully there's ways to do it smartly and strategically that won't create additional environmental devastation in the process. 30 years ago, Lake Powell just upstream of the canyon was full. Now it's two-thirds empty. And what the people who rely on the Colorado River are realizing is that too much water is an easier problem to solve than too little. I'm Judy Fays. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey. And this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, KHOL film critic Jeff Counts interviews Phil Mollenkoff, founder of the new Idaho Adventure Film Festival, coming up in Victor on August 20th. Phil, welcome to KHOL. Thank you for being with us today. Good to be here. So let's talk about the Idaho Adventure Film Festival. It's the first time it's happening. Why now? Why in Teton Valley? Well, my wife and I moved, and our two boys, we moved to Teton Valley um, about three years ago this summer. And when we got there, we were we love it, and um, we live in Victor. But, you know, we felt like there was definitely some community, you know, events and things that happened in the valley. But we, we thought, you know, there's it seems like there's room for more. 
things like Music on Main and Tin Cup. We just kind of wanted to create another thing like that. As a film critic for KHOL, I'm really curious about the films themselves. So talk about the roster of films. What will the content of the festival be? How were they chosen? What's your, what's your selection parameter? As someone who's, you know, studied film and, and marketing communications, I've, we really wanted to, to kind of bridge the gap between like Stoke adventure films, but also films that really make you think and that really, um, you know, sort of encourage you to like what we would say, like live your own best story or to give back to your community or that sort of thing. So we were pretty selective on films and we had, you know, a submission process and um, a couple of films we would actually reach out to filmmakers and say like, hey, would you submit this film if we really liked it? Um, but we've been searching for, I mean, for six months or a year, you know, just finding really good films and having films submitted. I can tell you, I've recently watched and reviewed a couple of films by local artists. And I know that it's an important aspect of filmmaking in our two valleys, this intersection between recreation and nature and wildlife in particular. Are you guys going to be taking up that conversation? Will that be part of what you're screening? Yeah, so there is a film about conservation um, called Denizens of the Steep uh, about the bighorn sheep population in the Tetons and how backcountry skiing is inter interferes with that. And so there's that film. But I also, you know, I'm also really interested in films that I'm, I'm you know, I think sometimes we're, we're a bit in a bit of a recreation bubble here and that, you know, we think like maybe some of the only issues in the world just have to do with nature and ecology and conservation, which they're important issues for sure in our backyard. But I'm also really interested in issues that deal with people, um, whether it's like mental health or poverty or, you know, gentrification or things that, that are happening in the rest of the world. And I'm really interested to think about how adventure films and adventure topics can kind of bring those themes into them. So sometimes it's like, you know, we have a, an incredible film about a skateboarder who became blind. And it's like it's it's a film about skateboarding, but it's really not. It's really about personal journey, you know? And so those are, I think, our favorite kind of films. Phil, one of the things I love most about film festivals is one of the things that COVID, frankly, ruined, and it's the opportunity to have really close access to the creators, to the yeah. directors and some of the stars. Will you be able to have some of that in this festival? Will there be people there to talk to the audience members? Yeah. So um, we are going to have at least one, maybe two different film guests, and they're going to get on stage and do a quick little Q&A with our host after the film. So, you know, we're going to keep the show moving, so it's not going to be super long, but it'll be like five or ten minutes. Um, just because, yeah, I mean, that's for us, that's a huge element of like digging into asking questions of like, well, why did you make this? And what was your inspiration? And, you know, what was the journey like? And all these big pieces that we really want to understand, like the, sort of the behind the art, you know. I think that's some of the most fun experiences you can have at a festival are you hoping this will be annual is this is this part of yeah your plan? at least annual and you know who knows we we're we've talked about potentially even doing like a couple small shows throughout the year whether it's like a winter one or you know spring or something like that but yeah um yeah we'll see how it goes but that's the plan we would love to do it annually at least so i do know music on maine so i'm curious what people can expect that are coming to Idaho. what what's it going to be like what's the overall festival experience that people can look forward to yeah we've we've sort of described to some people as like picture music on maine but with films you know um and maybe some lawn games because we're adding that as well so there'll be a couple food trucks there'll be grand teton brewing is doing beer and high point cider which just moved to victor and then um, we'll also have some like yard games, cornhole, slackline, just fun stuff for people to do. There'll be some live music at the start just playing on stage. And then we'll have a big raffle and then we'll go into the films. So, yeah, I mean, 
uh, well, I think one of the things we love so much about this area, the Tetons in the summer, is that sort of that laid back vibe, like drinking a beer, playing cornhole, just kind of hanging out in this beautiful weather. And so we were like, how can we capture that in this event? So hence the reason for being outside. Well, Phil, I'm very excited as a film person that this is happening. I think we should get a lot more active, creative work done in this art space in this, both of our valleys, actually. So I'm really glad that you're doing this. Thank you. And why don't you just, before we say goodbye, hit everyone with some details and some facts and where they can find out more about Wydaho. Great. Um, thanks so much. So uh, if you go to WydahoFilmFest.com, that's when you can buy tickets. It's on Friday, August 20th um, at Victor City Park and doors open at 6 p.m. Our last story today is part of a collaboration between Rocky Mountain Community Radio and the Solutions Journalism Network, highlighting housing solutions across the Mountain West. Southwest Colorado is facing a housing crisis similar to many other rural communities across the region. To combat the problem, local organizations are building affordable housing developments. But the housing crisis is a complex issue, and additional housing inventory won't solve it alone. Lucas Brady-Woods of KSJD in Cortez, Colorado, has the story. In southwest Colorado's Montezuma County, what little housing is available just isn't affordable for many residents. Rents are being pushed higher and higher because there's such low housing inventory in the region. Folks can't afford our high rents. Um, Our wage scale here is fairly low, so we've got folks that just literally are paying way too much of their income to stay housed. That's Kelly Willis. She's the executive director of the Pinion Project Family Resource Center, a nonprofit that provides a variety of services to Montezuma County residents. The organization has a handful of subsidized housing units available for low-income individuals. Willis says the organization also has plans to build a 50-unit affordable housing complex in Montezuma County. Tenants there will have a portion of their rent covered based on their income. Everybody, regardless of income, 30% of their income, if they have it, is what their rent remains. And it's not transitional housing, so it's not time-limited. People can remain there as long as they need to. Housing projects like this take time, though, and the Pinion Project's development hasn't even started construction yet. Willis says it's still looking for financing. That means it won't be move-in ready for another two years at least. Another affordable housing project in the area is being built by the Montezuma County Housing Authority. That project will include about 40 units, but won't be finished for a while either. According to the Housing Authority's executive director, it won't be move-in ready for over a year. But there are hundreds of people in Montezuma County who are struggling with housing insecurity right now. Willis says the wait lists on Pinion Project properties alone have around 400 people on them. On top of that, resources are especially scarce in southwest Colorado for people who are experiencing housing emergencies, such as homelessness or unsafe living conditions. And the few that are available are only temporary fixes. There's really not a lot of options for unhoused. Hopefully, we, we have put um, what I think is probably a Band-Aid on um, a lot of our emergency needs for housing And even when the affordable housing projects are finally built, they'll probably only scratch the surface of the housing crisis. The city of Durango in neighboring La Plata County is the closest population center to Montezuma County. 
Carrie Harrison is the head of Oak Tree Resources, an organization that helps youth find housing in Durango. She says that Durango already has several subsidized apartment buildings, but that they didn't make much of a dent in the housing crisis. Even though we have the affordable housing built in, in Durango, they're, they're all sitting full and we don't have the supply available that is even close to being affordable. Harrison also says using affordable housing as a solution has limitations. Whether it be the young person I'm working with or a 30-year-old, that working adult who still can't afford a place to rent, they don't qualify for affordable housing and they're floundering. Dr. Benjamin Waddell is a professor at Fort Lewis College in Durango. He studies poverty and systemic inequality, and he thinks that people need to shift their thinking when they consider possible solutions to the housing crisis. For example, he says there are some concrete steps communities can take to redistribute some of the wealth that's concentrated around housing. One of the ways that towns like Durango need to look at this is by looking at lodgers' taxes. I think um, they need to be more aggressive. He also says it's important to remember there are factors outside the housing market that are interrelated with the housing crisis. We, we've seen the inflation of higher education, the inflation of medical costs. We've seen the inflation of transportation costs across the board. Housing, um, you see this inflation of, of costs, but wages have really just kind of flatlined. Waddell says that if members of a community can't afford to access essential services because their wages are too low, they can't change their economic situation. And that creates inequality in areas like housing. Carrie Harrison, back at Oak Tree Resources, also thinks people need to start shifting the way they think about the housing crisis. People need to educate themselves. We need to educate people on how easy it is for someone to struggle with housing insecurity. And the focus has to change regarding what homelessness is or the potential for homelessness. Because, she says, anyone, including her own family, could be one paycheck away from housing insecurity. For KSJD News and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. In local government news, the Teton County Board of Commissioners held a workshop Monday to discuss the county's ongoing struggle of maintaining an engaged workforce. The commissioners hired Activate Human Capital Group as a consultant in June to help develop a plan to address employee engagement. A representative for the group summarized some of her findings from recent conversations with county employees. Some of the comments I heard were around um, outside experts versus inside experts, seeking that outside expertise before fully understanding what expertise we have in-house and people that have been working on this work for 50 or 20 years sometimes, a lot of it was around visibility and they don't, didn't feel like the commissioners knew what they were working on and why. The latest survey data shows that half of county employees are actively engaged in their work, while the other half are about evenly split between being not engaged or actively disengaged. Some of the actions the consultant recommended to improve those figures include having commissioners maintain more of a presence in county departments and discussing the impact of new and existing policies with staff. Commissioner Mark Barron says those changes seem to make sense to him. This isn't rocket science. This is communication. The consultant also cautioned the commissioners that the worst thing to do after conducting an employee engagement survey is nothing. 
People in cities and towns across the nation have been rallying over the past few weeks in support of voting rights legislation, and Jackson Hole is no exception. On Tuesday, about 20 people turned up to the town square, sporting signs urging politicians across the country to pass the For the People Act, which would guarantee a slew of voting rights, among other things. Janice Harris was one of those demonstrators, and she thinks it's critical to guarantee a fair democratic process even in a state like Wyoming, where it's relatively easy to cast your ballot compared to other states. I think we are very imbalanced. I think any healthy democracy has legitimate debate with strong people on both sides. So it's in everyone's interest to have a healthy, uh, again, open access. Harris is also a bit pessimistic, though, that anything is likely to change given the partisan divide in Washington. Republican legislatures in 14 states have passed laws this year, making it more difficult to cast a ballot, according to the nonpartisan institution Brennan Center for Justice. That includes Wyoming, where a photo ID is now required for in-person voting. The regional nonprofit groups Yellowstone Forever and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition have raised a combined $500,000 to match a commitment from Yellowstone National Park to expand its bison conservation transfer program. Executive Director of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, Scott Christensen, says the program helps preserve the lives of bison that migrate out of the park to the west and north into Montana. This really does two things. It helps uh, divert bison that have been, in our view, needlessly sent to slaughter for decades. And it also supports the goals of tribes and of a larger uh, bison restoration vision. The newly raised funds will now allow nearly three times as many bison to enter the conservation transfer program. Teton County has had a trash problem this summer. The local waste and recycling center is breaking records and sending truckloads of garbage to landfills in Idaho. The county has a goal of diverting 60% of its waste, that is recycling it, sorting it, or otherwise keeping it from the landfill by 2030. But Superintendent of Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling Brenda Ashworth says we're not even close to meeting that goal right now. Fiscal year 21, our municipal solid waste that we hauled to Bonneville County was up 10%. Construction and demolition waste was up 32%. And that's what I mean by we're heading in the wrong direction. Ashworth says to turn this around, she needs people to sort their own trash using the county standards. And that's especially true for those working in construction and demolition, businesses that have exploded recently with the growth of Jackson Hole. So many folks are dropping off heaps of scrap metal, concrete, wood, and more in big, unsorted piles. To try and remedy this, Ashworth has tried raising the fee for her employees to sort all that waste. The sort fee really is intended to be a deterrent to people, but we have found that in some cases, they're just using the sort fee as the cost of doing business. But that cost of doing business is costing Teton County in the form of damaged equipment, fuel, and wear and tear on workers. Most of all, it's burying more and more trash in the earth, something electeds and local residents have said they want to do less of. for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please remember to leave a rating for the show in Apple Podcasts in order to help us spread the word. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. <laughs>